Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Never bodes well for the future of a sermon when it begins with a Monty Python reference, but uh, this one's going to begin that way. You remember in uh, the Holy Grail film, there's a moment where in order to uh, destroy a vicious uh, rabbit, uh, they bring out the holy hand grenade of Antioch. And when the, the hand grenade is brought out, there's a long reading that one of the monks gives from a sort of pastiche of the King James Bible. It's just never ending. It goes on and on. And they really want to use the hand grenade. So one of the monks turns to him and he says, skip a bit, brother. Skip a bit, brother. As we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're looking at the last section, we'll, we'll, we'll finish chapter 2 this morning, you may find yourself thinking, skip a bit, brother. Because we're going to start dealing with things. Peter's going to get into things that are sometimes uncomfortable, things we don't want to hear, certainly things that if we were to believe them would cause us difficulty in our day and age. And so we might want Peter to skip a bit. It's interesting, these are things that typically we associate with Paul. The teachings of the Bible that, that we really don't want to hear about we think of that as sort of you know, hobby horses the, the Apostle Paul had. And yet you'll find in the book of First Peter, Peter will follow an outline very familiar to those of you who went through the book of Ephesians with us, what, two years ago. But he hits the same topics in roughly the same way. We talked last time about the importance of being subject to human institutions for the Lord's sake. And now, having given us the example of governments, Peter is going to dig his hole even a little deeper than that. He's going to start talking about the relationship of servants and masters. Unless we have any illusions about the servants he's talking about, he's not referring to employees. They just happen to be hired uh, in order to do some labor. The servants here are slaves. They're slaves. They're people who are owned by their masters. And now Peter is speaking to them and giving instruction to them. Before we look at our text, though, I I want us to think about why what Peter's about to say might be a little uncomfortable and a little embarrassing for us. Karl Marx once described religion as the opium of the people. The opium of the people. And if you think about what opium does, opium allows you to endure pain. It allows you to endure the unendurable. People who are hooked on opiates, often uh, it's because of pain that they started to take these things. So the point that he's making when he says religion is the opium of the people is it's because of religion that people endure the unendurable. The reason why the poor don't rise up and insist on justice for themselves is because they have religion. And religion comforts them. It keeps them quiescent, quiet. Religion, it uh, lets them continue with the way things are. Friedrich Nietzsche called Christianity a slave religion. A slave religion. And he acknowledged there was some cleverness to it. What he meant was that Christianity was an example of powerless people turning their powerlessness into a virtue. They were surrounded 
by the powerful. They had no power in their world. And so they invented a system of belief in which the virtuous people are the weak ones, not the strong. The people who suffer are the righteous, not the people who are rewarded. And in the ancient world, that was pretty phenomenal because the assumption had always been that if you're strong, it's because the gods have blessed you. If you prosper, it's because the gods favor you. These are ideas that haven't exactly died since the ancient world, but Christianity challenged those things. If the rich man gets whatever he wants in this life, you can be comforted that it will be harder for him to enter into the next life than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And maybe there is some comfort in that, but it would be more comforting if we could just take his money away. Christianity is good, in other words, as far as it goes, if you don't have the power to do anything about the way things are. Christianity is good if you don't have the power to change the world because it tells you that there is a better world coming sometime in the future. But what if we have the power to change the world? What if we have the power to make the world better now, then doesn't Christianity become more of a pious fantasy? Maybe words like Peter is about to speak to us were good in their day. They were good for those people. But to us, they are every bit as obnoxious as we've been led to believe. So let's hear the words that Peter has written. This is uh, 1 Peter 2 beginning with verse 18 and going through verse 25, which is through the end of the chapter. Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying, were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Those are words of Peter. He says, it is a gracious thing to endure unjust suffering for the Lord's sake. It's a gracious thing to endure unjust suffering for the Lord's sake. Servants should respect their masters, even if those masters are unjust, corrupt, undeserving in human eyes of that respect. We saw last time. Peter says Christians should be subject to human institutions, including governments. Now, in the master-servant relationship, the same idea is true. And he makes explicit here what was implicit before. 
Like that there's not a condition. He's not saying be subject, show respect when the authority has earned it. When the authority deserves it. When the authority is really good. In fact, just the opposite. He makes it really clear that he intends us to be subject to masters who are unjust. Bad masters should be respected, he says. Submission is not conditioned on authority being good. If you're a Christian, you have a duty to show respect to unjust masters. Which is really hard to do. I mean, this is certainly one of those things that even if you you read it, and you say, well, it's Bible, I've got to do it. Actually doing it is very hard. It's very difficult to respect those who are unjust, who seem to be undeserving. And it's also difficult to think of, of the implications of words like this. Like, what does this say about God? What does it say about God that he would expect respect towards the unjust? It seems to say that God values obedience to authority above justice. That he's more concerned that everybody be obedient than he is that everybody do what is right. Is that what Peter is saying? No. No. Peter explains the why as he continues. He's not saying be subject, show respect to the unjust because God sure likes obedience no matter what. He actually explains Why? He says, for this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. If you're mindful of God and you suffer unjustly, Peter says that act of endurance is a gracious thing. What does that mean? What is the gracious part of that? The, The suffering is not what's gracious. The injustice is not what's gracious. The endurance is what's gracious. The gracious thing is the endurance. That being mindful of God as you suffer unjustly, you endure, and that endurance is gracious. When we talk about grace, when we talk about something as being gracious, oftentimes, uh, certainly in, in a church setting, when we think about grace, we start thinking in very technical terms. Right, thinking of, of grace as the unmerited favor of God. But in everyday usage, when we think about what's gracious, if you see something and, uh, let's say, you're at a sporting event of some kind. I won't go too deeply into what kind. I don't want to reveal my ignorance about sporting events too, too plainly. But, but you see like an incredible play. You see like a virtuosity of physical performance. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's breathtaking, the the movement of it. There's an artistry to it. And sometimes when it occurs in that context where you're not really expecting beauty, it's it's shocking to you. It awakens you. It's transcendently beautiful. Like a moment that is so perfect that it speaks to a higher reality, that it gives you a sense of of something uh, above us, something beyond us. A gracious thing. It is a gracious thing. I think Peter has in mind... Those kinds of acts. Acts which draw back the veil on a higher good, on a higher reality. The transcendently beautiful. There is something beautiful about enduring suffering that you don't deserve. P. 
Peter actually contrasts two ways of suffering here. He's not giving a blanket endorsement of all suffering. He's contrasting the two things. He says, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He's contrasting, let's say, two kinds of punishment, just and unjust. Basically, just punishments, no one's going to pat you on the back for enduring it because you deserved it, because you asked for it. If you suffer because you deserve it, you suffer because you've done something wrong, you suffer for your sin, and you bear it, and you show character in enduring it, what credit is that? You deserved what you had coming. There's nothing beautiful about enduring that punishment. Maybe there's something just, but there's nothing beautiful about that kind of endurance. It is unjust punishment, specifically, that Peter is talking about. When you do nothing wrong, when you are punished, made to suffer unjustly, enduring that kind of punishment is a gracious thing in the sight of God. But if we're honest, I mean, most of us struggle with enduring punishment when we do have it coming. Right? When I obviously do something wrong, uh, Lori and I just celebrated our 21st wedding anniversary, so I feel like I can confess now that occasionally, in the context of our marriage, I don't do everything right. And if I do something wrong, I say something unkind or insensitive, as hard as that is to imagine, and I receive a penalty a judgment is poured out upon me for having done what I've done. If I endure it with character and I, I acknowledge my fault and I say, you know, you're right to have done that horrible thing that you just did to me. I deserved it. I had it coming. <laughs> no one says, wow, that Mark, man, he is amazing. That is such a gracious thing that he endured with, with such strength, that punishment that he brought down on himself. No. And here's the thing, when I transgress, and Lori rightly punishes me for it, I feel like there's something unfair about that, right? Like, even when we do something wrong, and, and a, a just consequence comes our way, if we actually have to endure it, it doesn't feel right. We should have been let off the hook. I mean, how many times growing up did you break the rules and, and get caught and see punishment coming and feel like there was something fundamentally corrupt and unjust about your parents punishing you for doing what you knew what was wrong. It's how we are. Even just punishment is difficult for us to endure. In the way of the world, typically, the, the world is full of guilty people objecting to just punishment. Guilty people objecting to just punishment. And this is certainly the case where the guilt of sin is concerned. Or the Bible tells us there's a holy God who administers just punishment to guilty people. We howl at this stern, harsh, unloving God that the Bible portrays. What? The guilty will be punished? Outrageous. Outrageous. How can I believe in such a God? Now, if we struggle with that, if we struggle with that kind of endurance, then the kind of endurance that Peter is talking about is much harder. It's much harder to get your head around. But, I mean, if you're pious, if you're pious enough, if you've spent enough time in church to know what the right answers generally are, 
Maybe you could read words like Peter's and think that what he's demanding is that guilty people patiently endure just punishment. Instead of complaining about what we have coming, we should endure what we have coming. We say, yeah, that's true. I am a sinner. I am responsible. Everything I get, I deserve. And I will not complain. And that is righteousness. But that is not the gracious thing that Peter is talking about. Right? He's not encouraging uh, guilty people to patiently endure just punishment. He's doing something even worse than that. Even harder than that. If you're guilty and you're punished, who cares if you endure patiently? Peter says there's no credit in that. What Peter is talking about is innocent people patiently enduring unjust punishment. Innocent people patiently enduring unjust punishment. That is gracious in the sight of God. That kind of endurance in the sight of God is a gracious thing. Why? What's so gracious about that? It's the kind of thing, think about it, that we look at and it seems to us the the ugliest thing. The worst thing, the thing that hurts you the most is to see when the innocent suffer unjustly. Why would that be a gracious thing in the eyes of God? Why would a thing that seems so abhorrent to us be so pleasing to Him? Endurance is a gracious thing because it signifies the most gracious act in human history. We ask ourselves, how? How can this be a gracious thing? But the question is, how can it be a mystery to us? Why? In the eyes of God, this is a gracious thing. How can we not understand why, in God's eyes, this kind of endurance is beautiful? We may think we understand the gospel. We may think that we have a a grasp on the work that Christ came down to do. But if we're puzzled by this, we cannot see why it is a gracious thing in the eyes of God when we endure unjust suffering. Then we have still something to learn. Why is this a gracious thing? Why is it a gracious thing in the eyes of God? Jesus. Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the reason. Because Jesus' life is an example of exactly this that we've been called to follow. The answer is that because of Jesus, who was perfectly innocent, who endured the most unjust suffering for the Lord's sake, that is why it is gracious. Because when we do that, we follow in his steps. Peter says, for this, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You hear about this idea of walking in Jesus' steps. You know, what would Jesus do? Peter's saying this is where Jesus' steps take you. If you walk in Jesus' steps, you will suffer unjustly. And Peter says that when you do that, you should rejoice. We skip ahead a little to 1 Peter 4, verse 13. Peter says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So not only ought we to endure, but we should rejoice in our unjust sufferings because they are a participation, a way of sharing in Christ's suffering. 
Jesus left behind an example with the intention that we would follow after Him. We're meant to live like Him. Your path to exaltation leads through a valley of suffering, a veil of humiliation, just like His did. Just like His did. And it is a gracious thing when you walk in His steps and endure. Walking like Jesus changes your reaction to suffering unjustly. Jesus was more innocent than any of us could ever dream of being. Peter says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Yet when Jesus suffered unjustly, he did not react the way we do. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When we are reviled, we revile in turn. When we suffer, we threaten. It's baked into us, deep in our nature. This is how we respond. And if it's unjust... We, we, we fight back even harder. We fight back when it's just. When our punishment is just, we revile and we threaten. And when it is unjust, we feel justified. Justified in whatever it takes to vindicate ourselves. And yet Jesus did not do this. Jesus did not respond to the unjust penalty that was inflicted on him In this way, he endured it, mindful of God. He endured it for the Lord's sake and for ours. He was our great high priest. We entrust ourselves to him. And we entrust ourselves to the one he entrusted himself to. Why was it that Jesus didn't revile? Why was it that Jesus didn't threaten? It's because... Peter says he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He's not referring to Pilate, his human judge, who judged him unjustly and inflicted an unjust penalty upon him. While that injustice was being perpetrated against Jesus, Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. His endurance was a model and a picture of his trust in the justice of the Father. Everything that he endured for the Lord's sake, every unjust penalty that was exacted against him, he endured the way he endured it as an acknowledgement of his trust in the Father's judgment. He believed the Father would judge justly. We fight fire with fire. We revile when we are reviled. We fight fire with fire as if that's all we've got. As if if we don't fight, then we lose. And there will be no final reckoning, no final judgment. If as Christians we confess that we believe one day he is coming again, that one day he will judge the living and the dead, that there will be final justice, how can we live in this life as if there won't be? How can our hearts beat in this life as if the only justice to be had is a justice found in the here and now? 
I think this is hard for us. It's hard for us to live this way and to endure this way because we've inherited a way of thinking about the world, a way of, of thinking about reality that was shaped by ideas like the ones we talked about earlier, uh, Marx's idea of religion and Nietzsche's idea of Christianity. We live in a world that has been disenchanted, demythologized. We have carefully stripped away all of the pious illusions that people of the past used to justify things so that now we see things clearly. The world stripped of its noble fantasies. And the people who did it were good people. The people who tore down all of these myths were good people, thinking that they were doing a good thing. They thought that if they stripped away all the pious lies and the ridiculous gilding from all the real ugliness in the world, that if that ugliness were exposed for the raw power play that it really is, that people would have to turn their backs on it. Like the, the, the emperor's new clothes. Like if people could see the ugliness and the injustice and the horror for what it really was, it would end. It would end in revulsion. We would turn away from all of these terrible things. Once our eyes were opened, we would reject everything that was brutal and heartless and cruel. Now, people thought, people thought that this would work because they thought that the reason that we do evil is because we don't know any better. And if our eyes were merely open to the ugliness of what we do and the consequences of what we do, then the evil would stop. It's the same way sometimes that we comfort ourselves now that all of the problems that we face in life could be solved with a little bit more education. If only people knew a little bit more. We think that the solutions are so close. It could be found in, in a bit of education. We can educate our way to a better world. But what those good people forgot and what we so often forget is how attractive Bare ugliness is to human nature. Think about the ugliness of war, for example. We still make war movies, but all our war movies are technically anti-war movies. So it's okay to revel in glory in the violence because the message overall is that it's just terrible that any of that had to happen. And then there's more explosions to glory in. War was one of those things throughout human history that was surrounded by this, this, these tales of glory and honor. Like our earliest stories of war, going back to the Iliad, uh, make it seem as if this terrible thing, all of this killing and violence, is actually something beautiful. But if we could strip that away, if we could take the glory and the honor of war away, then all wars would cease. All wars would end. If we could just acknowledge how unglamorous it was. We only go to war because we believe in the fantasy of honor and bravery. We let tales of heroic self-sacrifice blind us to the brutal reality of the consequences. So if those things go away, then war ceases. That's the idea. You see how it turned out? We stripped away the glory, the nobility, the bravery, all of that. We've admitted that it's pure ugliness. We don't wage war less often. People of the past never imagined that once there was no nobility in dying for your country that we would wholeheartedly embrace in the words of General Patton, making the other poor bastard die for his. And that we would embrace it wholeheartedly. We didn't turn away from the ugliness. 
we embraced it with honesty. And it seemed good that we weren't lying to ourselves about how bad the things we had to do really were. Instead of bringing us to our senses by scouring away the good, the true, and the beautiful, we've only made ourselves into pragmatists who justify the ugliness as the law of tooth and claw. And as you hear Peter's words, you might be tempted to think that what Peter is doing is exactly the kind of thing that needed stripping away. Peter's taking an ugly thing, a horrible thing, and he's trying to make it pretty. He's trying to conceal its essential nature by saying there is some noble silver lining to be had in this relationship between masters and servants. He says it's a gracious thing to endure as unto the Lord unjust suffering, but that's just a pious myth. That just perpetuates the kind of problems that we ought to be focused on solving. It's just a way for the masters of today to keep the servants down. Slave religion has always been making excuses for injustice, and Peter, in this text, gives us a perfect example. I understand why you might think that, reading Peter, especially reading him now, but you're wrong. Notice, Peter doesn't say that these things are not unjust. Peter's not looking at injustice and calling it justice. He's acknowledging it is fundamentally unjust. He's acknowledging that, that what is happening is terrible. What he's saying is that even in that injustice, there is a beauty revealed in the example in the life of Christ. If we are Jesus' brothers and sisters called to journey in his steps, then we should journey through that injustice and through that suffering the way that he did. And when we do, when we endure, it is a transcendently beautiful thing. It may seem ugly to us now, but in the eyes of God, in the sight of God, from the perspective of heaven, it is beautiful. All this to say that we do find ourselves subject to authorities who are unjust. That's perhaps more the rule than the exception. We find ourselves serving masters who don't just encourage us to do the good, but instead masters who expect us to do all sorts of things that we shouldn't. Should we follow them when they command iniquity? As we saw last time, no. But we ought to show respect. We ought to be subject even to those who are unjust. And the only way you can make sense of that is to ask yourself the question, who's the real judge? Who's the real master? Jesus trusted himself to the judge who judges justly, meaning that Pilate wasn't his judge. God was. And when we endure suffering for the Lord's sake, we show that we may be subject to an unjust master, but we serve the risen Lord. You may be subject to an unjust master, but you do not serve one. He himself, Peter writes, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The shepherd and overseer of your soul. He's the one you answer to. He's the one you serve. He's the one you endure on behalf of. Jesus bore your sins on the cross so that you would die to sin and live to righteousness. If you are his, you have been healed. You're not wandering the fields without a shepherd. You are in his flock. If you're in Jesus, you do not serve an unjust master. You serve a just and loving Lord who did a gracious thing on your behalf and calls you to live a life of graciousness, of transcendent beauty. The world thinks its eyes are open, but it's blind to the beauty of this calling. We must see it for what it is. How do you endure unjust suffering for the Lord's sake? By keeping your eyes on the Lord who suffered so much for your sake. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.